Uh, good evening. Maybe we could turn uh, to the second epistle of Timothy. We're going to continue with our theme of the rapture. Tonight we're going to try and uh, gather some fragments of Scripture together. Uh, one of the things uh, that I was reminded of this morning is that um, we believe in uh, a progress of doctrine in Scripture, right? This idea that revelation progresses, right? You understand the concept that you know, what we have in uh, Genesis is not the complete, although we agree it's a book of beginnings and there's lots of seed thoughts in the book of Genesis, uh, that doctrine progresses, that the Lord doesn't tell us uh, all there is to know about any one subject and any one portion of the Word of God. And so the value of study, right? Uh, we need to study. And, and um, clearly that's what the Apostle Paul is, is talking about in, in 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy would be one of his last epistles, uh, one of the last epistles he wrote. Uh, this morning in 1 Thessalonians, we suggested that that was probably one of his first. This is one of his last. Uh, that's useful. Um, it's useful uh, as we think about what the church was like in uh, the Apostle Paul's day, uh, clearly it was this movement that was taking the world by storm. Uh, Bill McDonald says uh, the work of the early apostles, they were turning the world upside right. It was already upside down, right? They were turning it right side up. And so they were taking the world by storm. Um, what the early apostles were able to accomplish could only be attributed to the work of God. Um, Herbert Lockyer in his book on all the apostles of the Bible says that sometimes we, we have this misconception. We think that um, Peter and Paul, they were the only men who really did anything for the Lord, right? Uh, they're the only ones we read about in the book of Acts. We don't read about the others. Right, And so he says, the tendency of the human heart is to assume that, well, they never did anything for the Lord. But as Herbert Lockyer points out, uh, hey, the apostles were not the star of the New Testament. The star of the New Testament is the Son of God. Um, uh, he says, we have to assume that what the Holy Spirit did through and in and through Peter and Paul is what he did through all the apostles, right? Do we think that to be true? Hey, if you go to India, well, North America, we like the apostle Paul. What apostle do the Indian believers like? St. Thomas. Why? Well, because he went there. Paul went west. Thomas went east. Right? He went east with the gospel. And make no mistake about it, he was not establishing uh, Catholic churches in India. He was establishing New Testament assemblies. Uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, makes the point that, uh, that you remember the message of John 14. Do you remember the message of John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who was that message given to? Remember who asked the question? Thomas. And so Ravi says that, um, can you imagine being sent to a country, 
of over 360 million deities and have to stand on the street corner and preach. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He says it's no wonder he was ran through with a spear. The miracle is that it took so long. Hey, he lived a long time establishing New Testament churches. And so um, as we read through uh, the New Testament, we have this progress, this unfolding. And so I would suggest that uh, tonight what we want to try and do is, is gather up some ideas. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writing says in verse 14, Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of hearers, the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus, Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying, notice this, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. So what's under attack? The days in which the apostle Paul preached and reminded Timothy and and exhorted him and encouraged him to not forget these things, to continue to remind the saints of the things that they already knew. What was under attack? The resurrection. Uh, We want to be effective in our Christian witness, right? We long to uh, be useful to the Lord and to see fruit for our labors. Well, um, Paul says to Timothy to be a workman that some successful, we need to be diligent. Uh, To be diligent, we need to be diligent in our study of the scriptures. The scriptures, according to this verse, can be rightly divided. They can also be wrongly divided. And so uh, we would suggest at the outset that the doctrine of the rapture of the church is under attack. If you listen to, hey, not, not by its enemies, but by its professing friends. And so we read this 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 verse this morning in First Thessalonians chapter 1, the wait for his son from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? Is it the wrath? Is it judgment? The wrath, the tribulation period, this is what Revelation chapter 6 is about. The wrath of the Lamb poured out in an unbelieving world. You know, some have pointed out that Uh, We believe as the church, right, that we're the bride of the Lamb. Do we believe that? That we're the bride of the Lamb? That we're going to be united to the Lord Jesus someday? Um, The wrath of the Lamb? Uh, The marriage supper of the Lamb? (laughs) Some of, uh, as they say, ably pointed out that it seems uh, absurd to think that Uh, before the marriage supper of the lamb, that the lamb is going to present his bride to the wrath of the lamb before he marries her. There must be some deliverance. And the New Testament is full of teaching on the subject. Hey, the Old Testament is full of pictures of this idea of deliverance. 
Can you think of any? Um, before this tribulation period is poured out, uh, pictures of, of, of believers being removed out of the world. Well, that's the story of Enoch, right? Enoch walked with God. He was translated. He was not. And then judgment came. In fact, we learned that it couldn't come until he was removed. And so as we say that the, the doctrine is under attack, uh, we want to be um, steadfast, right? Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's a great verse, right? You hear that quoted all the time. Therefore, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's the context of the therefore? We always know that. We hear that all the time. Uh, what's the therefore, therefore, and we want to figure it out. Well, what's the, what's the basis of that great verse? Now, Mike likes to, um, what is it, Mike, you like to ask? Trivia. Trivia that you know the answer to. That's your favorite kind. Is that what you said? That's my favorite kind, too. I like to ask the question, but I know the answer to that. Sitting there, I probably wouldn't. But what's the context of that great verse? Therefore, the coming of the Lord. That's the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That somehow, as we were reminded this morning, that the Apostle Paul felt like, by divine revelation, that the coming of the Lord could establish us, right, in the way we live the way we work, the way we labor. And so the attack um, on the coming of the Lord. Turn, if you could, back to the book of Romans, to chapter 11. And as we think about this concept of uh, rightly dividing uh, the word of God, uh, the book of Romans needs to be divided. I don't know what you think of as you envision how uh, Romans fits together. Um, we know that... that um, in Paul's teaching, in biblical teaching, that doctrine always came before practice, right? So this principle that uh, what you believe, what I believe affects the way I behave, right? Uh, you teach children in school that they came from animals, right? Don't be surprised if they act like animals. Uh, so doctrine... The things I believe affect the way that I behave. And so the Apostle Paul always, always starts with doctrine. Um, uh, the book of Ephesians, six chapters. The first three. What do you do? What are you called to do in the first three chapters of Ephesians? Nothing. The Lord has done it all. It's a work of God. He's done it all. Uh, and then chapter 4, verse 1 begins, after knowing all these things, we're to walk worthy of that vocation wherewith we're called, right? But the motivation is what God has already done. Well, the book of Romans divides out like that. Um, 16 chapters, uh, chapter 1, uh, the source of the gospel, right? Where did the gospel come from? Well, it came from God. Men could never have conceived of the idea. It could only come from God. Uh, uh who could pay for it? Who could uh, first come up with this plan and then, as some have pointed out, afford it? Well, only God, right? He could only afford this plan of redemption. So that's uh, chapter 1, the first half of chapter 1. Who needs the gospel? Well, everybody, right? That's the point. It doesn't matter whether you're raised in a Jewish home or raised as a pagan or you're morally righteous. Paul goes to great lengths to show that everybody needs the gospel, Right, I mean, we hear uh, we hear Romans three, right, twenty three this morning. What is Romans three twenty three? 
for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the whole sentence? Because that's breaking in the middle of a sentence, right? Right? I mean, it's a, it, it, we know this, that, that Paul would, would, would build his argument. And so what's the first part of that sentence? I know it's, we have for all have sinned, but what's the first part? What's the beginning of the sentence? For there is no difference. Right? That's the, that's the verse. For there is no difference for all have sinned. And that's what he's proving. It doesn't matter where we come from in life. The gospel is suited for the human need, for the human condition in any part of the world. Why the source? God. That's Romans chapter 1. So he builds up. Then he begins to talk about the, the three tenses of our salvation. Right? And we understand this. Hey, listen. To accurately, rightly divide the word of God, we have to understand that um, even salvation has to be rightly divided. You know, um, Christians sometimes teach that you can lose your salvation, right? You know that. There are Christians who teach you can lose your salvation. Do you know where they get that from? The Bible. That's where they get it from. So when they come to your door or you talk to them, they will take you to passages in the Word of God and tell you you can lose your salvation. They have verses for it. Uh, I would suggest that uh, the verses they have have to do with sanctification, not justification. Paul goes to great lengths to show that justification is this declaration by God. He can't make it any more simple than the end of Romans chapter 3, that he who believes in Jesus, right? I mean, Paul's a theologian. He, he knew a lot about the person of Christ. He knew a lot about the titles of deity. And yet he simplified his gospel message that he who believes in Jesus is justified. What does it mean? Declared righteous by God. And so what God declares, right, can't be changed. And so when people talk about a loss of salvation, what's lost is sanctification. Hey, make no mistake about it. You can lose your sanctification, right? Not God's part of it. You know, the idea that God gives his life to live within, but we can lose our sanctification, right? You know, this idea uh, Bill McDonald has in his book, Be Holy, this forgotten Christian commandment that there's a life of holiness decisions to be made. He says a Christian says no a thousand times a week to things. Sanctification is what can be lost. And so Paul spends some time working through sanctification. Romans part of five, six, part of seven. Uh, then he talks about the final stage of our salvation, right? I mean, uh, the final stage of our salvation, glorification, that when we see him, we'll be like him, right? Uh, preachers in the past had, um, you know, this idea of these Ps. They would say something like um, saved, uh, justification, saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty for sin is death, saved from the penalty. Uh, sanctification, that middle part, that part we're in now that we thought about this morning that Paul so emphasizes in the book of Thessalon uh, Thessalonians, uh, saved from the power of sin in our lives, right? And then, of course, glorification, uh, the peace saved from the very presence of sin, right? So we've heard that that's useful. And so uh, God makes all these promises in the book of Romans, right? By the apostle, Paul makes all these promises to the Christians. And so the question comes, 
what about Israel? Because God made promises in the past, what's going to happen to them? And so uh, Romans 9, 10, 11 are this middle part, right, where, where Paul is answering the question for Israel. Where do they fit into God's economy? Uh, the church at large today, uh, some would be anti-Semitic. You know, there would be people today who would be in the Christian church, very well born again, uh, who have no place, not even in God's economy, but no place even in their heart for the Jew. What do you think of the Jews? God's people. Uh, you've seen the bumper sticker, haven't you? Hey, my best friend was a Jewish carpenter. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. The Lord Jesus was a carpenter. And um, how could we say we love the Lord Jesus and not love his people? And so this is what Paul begins to answer, this idea of what about the promises made to Israel? They'll be fulfilled. Uh, so, so Romans 9, uh, God's dealing with Israel in the past. How did he deal with Israel in the past? Uh, Romans 10. How does God deal with Israel in the present? Hey, where are all the good gospel verses in Romans? Which chapter? Well, we might say Romans 6. Um, hey, many of the good verses are in chapter 10, right? Aren't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hey, is that just a New Testament idea? No, hey, you know what's remarkable is uh, even in Jonah's day, uh, his, uh, his partners in prophecy, it were some of them that quoted those kind of words, right? Uh, Amos and Hosea, they knew these things, and yet God chooses uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh, not because he was the most qualified, but because the Lord was working in Jonah's life, right? And so... Um, uh, Romans chapter 10, how God deals with Israel in the present tense is exactly how he deals with us. Hey, when a Gentile calls upon the name of the Lord, he's saved. When a Jew calls upon the name of the Lord, he's saved. Present tense. Uh, chapter 11, how will God deal with Israel in the future? And so uh, that's where we're at now. Um, verse 15 Paul says this, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this trilogy of books uh, put out by Gospel Folio, uh, or at least republished by Gospel Folio by Neil Fraser. Who has any of those books? Uh, the Grandeur of Golgotha, the uh, uh Glory of his rising, the gladness of his return. Have you heard of those three? You haven't heard of them? Well, they're, they're uh, outstanding books. And um, uh, in Neil Fraser's book, the, the Gladness of His Return, you know, His Coming, he goes through and shows you lengthily all these pictures. Well, you know, this verse here, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so 
uh, the picture here, the argument the Apostle Paul is making, just he said, think about this. The, the, the Jews rejected their Messiah. They chose a cross for him. Uh, he died on the cross. Uh, uh, the, kingdom, uh, the kingdom promise wasn't fulfilled to Israel. In comes the church, and this innumerable host is saved, right? And that's what we read about in the book of the Revelation. Uh, and so Paul says here, if, if their casting away of the Messiah brought such huge blessing, he says, imagine... Imagine what their reconciliation is going to be. And so uh, Neil Fraser shows, hey, this is pictured in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. I mean, think about the theme of the book of Jonah. Here's Jonah in disobedience. Uh, The Gentile uh, sailors come to him. Don't you care about people? He says, hey, listen, if you want to be saved, you need to what? Throw me overboard. And so he's cast into the sea. What happens to the Gentile sailors? They're all saved. Turn over to chapter 4. Jonah's restored. What happens in Nineveh? Hey, the whole city's saved. Right? You believe that, right? The whole city's saved. We know that the Lord Jesus tells us that they're going to rise up in a coming day as judges. I mean, uh, they repented at Jonah's preaching. And um, Jonah tells us it wasn't motivated by love. And, and, and so uh, Neil Fraser said, hey, this is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11. Now, you have to have a place to fit these things into your theology, into your thinking. You have to have a framework to understand these passages in the Bible. So then Paul goes on in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 25. He says, for I do not desire, brethren that you should be ignorant or uh, be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, and then he says, and all, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, right? The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so the order the Apostle Paul writes about is this fullness of time, this period where the Gentiles will be blessed and it will come to an end. And after that end, then Israel will be restored. Israel will be saved. And so we see this pictured all over in the Bible. Uh, We turn uh, to the book of the Revelation. Uh, the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 2, chapter 3, what do we have pictured? We have the church, right? Uh, the church on earth. Real place, real physical places, really works of God. The church is there. We turn to chapter 4, where is the church? In heaven. How did she get there? The rapture. That's the solution. Nothing else fits. Hey, Daniel would have been plenty qualified to understand the book of the Revelation. But from chapter 4 onward, hey, chapter 4 and 5 are the same things Daniel wrote about. And so when the Apostle Paul writes about a mystery here, uh, what's the mystery? Well, this period of time, what we call the church age. When did it start? Pentecost, right? And... and um, uh, started in Pentecost, when will it end? 
Well, the rapture. Hey, when you read about this tribulation period in the Old Testament, it's always connected with Israel, with Jacob. And so uh, some of the proponents of a, of a, a different view would say, well, you know, the church has, has taken Israel's place and Israel no longer has any part in God's economy. Uh, hey, not true because, uh, well, first of all, it's quite selfish, right? I mean, uh, what they would be suggesting is all the good things come to the church and all the curses are, right, uh, associated with Israel. And so it doesn't fit together. So we at least have to have some kind of a framework to fit these mysteries in. Well, here, uh, the mystery is this idea that there was going to be a time period, right? A time period for the Gentiles. And we would suggest to you that that's the period in which we live. Now, if a Jew is going to be saved today, he's saved like in Romans chapter 10, right? He's saved by calling upon the name of the Lord and he is added or she is added to the body of Christ. And we trust that we have Jewish friends who know and love the Lord Jesus. Do we have any Jewish people here tonight? Any? Part Jewish? Okay, well, that's fine. You don't have to be Jewish to be here. But, um, you know, we, we understand this idea. Hey, the Jews are going to have an opportunity in a coming day to evangelize the world. Remember, this is what um, God elected them for, right? God elected them for what purpose? What, that they could be an exclusive group to himself? No, he elected them that they might serve the world, right? And so what he did was he he placed the nation of Israel in the smallest part of the world, really the center of the world, but in this small country that uh, this land bridge be all before, between all the continents that as people went back and forth and passed through Israel, they would see a people who uh, served the Lord, were blessed for their obedience, and they would be drawn to the God of Israel. That was God's purpose, that he might bless the nations through Israel. Well, they never fulfilled that, right? But they are going to get that opportunity. You know, um, if you get the opportunity to uh, listen to John Wolford, he has some messages on Voices for Christ about uh, the rapture, and he has this um, this uh, this perspective of uh, Revelation chapter six. You know, of this this innumerable host. No, sorry, seven. This innumerable host in heaven that John witnesses, and and um, John says, "Where do all these people come from? Like this host that can't be numbered. Where did they all come from?" And so some scholars will tell you as well, it's really the same group as from chapter 4 and 5. It's not any different. It's just worded different. John Wolford says he doesn't believe that. It, John, he said, would have recognized many of them if it was the same group because John worked in the church longer than any of the other apostles. Hey, he outlived Paul by maybe 30 years. And so at the very least, he would have, if it was the same group, John would have been able to look around and see some of the Christians he ministered to, right? Because we're going to recognize people in heaven, aren't we? You know, sometimes people say, uh, will we recognize one another in heaven? You know, this question was asked to Charles Spurgeon. Will we recognize one another in heaven? He said, well, brethren, do you think we'll be any less intelligent there than we are here? I mean, we can do it here. We'll be able to do it there. And so, um, John, uh, it wasn't that same group. And so John asked the question, well, where did they all come from? He said, well, from the tribulation, John, saved out of that seven-year period. How could an innumerable host be saved in seven years? John Phillips says that, you know, the Apostle Paul was effective in the gospel, don't you think? Hey, 
when he was converted, when he was saved, back in Acts chapter 9, it says, he began to immediately prove from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he was deity. You know where he did that from, right? He did that from the Old Testament, right? He hadn't written the New Testament yet, so he did that from the Old Testament. Uh, From the day that he was converted, he began... Well, it would be three days later, his baptism. But he began to prove from the scriptures the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John Philip says, times Paul's ministry by 144,000. Because that's what's going to happen. 144,000 plus Jewish people will come to the realization that Jesus is their Messiah. That's going to happen during the tribulation period. And they'll go out and fulfill their original commission of being a blessing Uh, to the whole world. And so here, uh, it's this mystery. We want to take that uh, theme and turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or turn ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and um, pick up this word again. Uh, Verse 50, Paul says this, Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so um, the mistake often that is made is that people would suggest that the mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the resurrection. Is that a mystery? Uh, well, we would say this. A mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament. Tyrannus Wilson has a Uh, a book entitled God's Sacred Secrets, and he goes through the seven mystery doctrines of the New Testament, right? Um, Well, there's five mystery doctrines, I think, and then two great mysteries, right? Uh, The great mysteries, uh, the church, and the other, yeah, the incarnation, right? Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. And so uh, here, mystery, the mystery is not resurrection, uh, did the Old Testament saints believe in resurrection? Yeah? Example? Well, uh, what's the oldest book? Uh, well, we say Genesis, but the scholars would tell us the book of Job. The book of Job's the oldest. Did Job believe in the resurrection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Job chapter 19, right? Is it 19? He says, uh, uh, well, let's turn back. Keep your finger here and turn back to, I think it's uh, 19. Yeah, Job 19, verse 26, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Did Job believe in the resurrection? Of course he did. Um, Other Old Testament saints, did they believe in the resurrection? Abraham, did he believe in the resurrection? Case in point, verse, what would you use? Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll see that Abraham believed in the resurrection. In fact, that was the uh, truth that came to him sometime in the night before he uh, moved to Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so uh, did Abraham believe in the resurrection? He believed in the resurrection. Um, the transitionary period, you know, the transitionary period of the Gospels, did the Christians, the followers of Jesus, did they believe in the resurrection? Mm-hmm. You remember John chapter 11? Uh, you remember John chapter 11 at the grave of Lazarus? You remember the Lord Jesus had a conversation with Martha? Yeah, but remember before that he said, remember she said to him, uh, well, Lord, I know that in the last day he'll be raised again. She believed in the resurrection and the Lord Jesus taught her something else, something in addition to that. And so uh, when we read of a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it can't be resurrection. It has to be something else because this idea of resurrection was throughout Scripture. Job, Abraham, the New Testament Christians as they made this transition. So it must be something else. I would suggest to you it's the rapture. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, the rapture of the church. And um, he's adding to what we've already learned, say from John chapter 14. Remember we said this morning, and we'll look at that hopefully, not tonight, but uh, John 14, the resurrection in seed form. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or sorry, uh, the rapture in John 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it's the rapture, and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's the rapture that's being taught. Um, not like the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke may have some allusion, some allusions to the rapture, but that's not what Matthew 24 and 25 is about. It's not about the rapture. It's about the coming of the kingdom. And we tried to emphasize this morning that, that the second coming of the Lord Jesus comes in stages, right? And that this coming with great power and glory, every eye seeing him that, that the gospel Matthew writes about is not the rapture, something different. And so here, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, he writes about this mystery, something that was not taught in the Old Testament. Something hidden. Well, we know resurrection, uh, judgment in the Old Testament. Hey, Daniel, as we said, he knew about these things. Hey, if Daniel was here uh, tonight, he would by far be the most qualified to teach on the book of the Revelation. In fact, people will tell you, if you don't uh, know the book of Daniel, you can never understand the book of the revelation so uh he would know about that stuff from five onward or sorry from four onward to 18 uh but he wouldn't know about this mystery that church age would be hidden from him it was a mystery and that's what paul calls it in the book of timothy this mystery was hidden in the old testament now they're an illusion for sure right there's pictures of the church for sure in the old testament but the doctrine was a mystery hidden. And so now linked with that, not just its inception or how it was conceived in the book of the Acts, but this idea of how it's taken up out of the world. And so it suggests to you that as you try to uh, put these pieces together, um, that it's interpreted from one end of the Bible to the other. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, we need a framework. We need a framework for 
accurate Bible interpretation. So to be accurate, we have to have a place for Israel. We have to have a place for Israel because God made real promises to them and God keeps his promises. Uh, We have to have a framework that would allow for them to fulfill their original commission. Uh, We have to be able to take the book of the Revelation literally, right? That's not figuratively or spiritually interpreted. Uh, This idea of a a coming trouble like the world hasn't seen, that's what the Bible talks about. And God is going to use that to uh, restore his people. Uh, We'll trust that uh, we'll think more on that uh, in our next session. We'll we'll start, I think, in the book of John and consider chapter 14, which is seed thoughts given by the Lord Jesus the night uh, before his crucifixion that would set the stage for the teaching of the uh, sort of the order and the teaching of the rapture in the New Testament that both Peter, or sorry, both uh, Paul and John uh, knew about that message that the Lord Jesus gave that night. They both used it in their writing. Not just John, although he was there, uh, Paul knew about that and he used that to establish the rapture in his teaching. So there again, lots that we could think about. I know it's a... Uh, a little bit all over the place, but uh, as some have said in the past, uh, one or two or three sessions could never really cover the rapture, but beyond that, it would be hard as a student to work through these things completely. So there's lots of good resources. Uh, I recommended some. Uh, I recommended uh, Neil Fraser's books. They're helpful. Reynolds Showers has some books that are very helpful on the rapture. Uh, he believes it. He's a friend of uh, the Jews. He's Jewish himself. He's associated with the Friends of Israel ministry and um, uh, maybe the best modern-day theologian that's out there. Uh, he has a place for uh, in, his, in his understanding, his Bible interpretation for Israel. Uh, he believes in a pre-tribulation, uh, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. He believes in this literal... Uh, period of time where uh, Israel is restored to God. He believes of the ushering in of of God's millennial kingdom. He believes that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to really reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. And hey, lots of Bible verses that talk about that. The Lord Jesus is coming back. Now, uh, us as a people, we are not waiting for signs, right? We can watch the signs. We can see them. We can look at them but we're not waiting for any signs, right? We are waiting for the Savior, right? We are watching for him. He could come tonight. I mean, I know we say that sometimes rather glibly, but the Lord Jesus Christ could come tonight. Um, You've heard the uh, illustration of that great Bible teacher, Harold Sinjin. They said he woke up every morning, said, maybe today, Lord, maybe today. And then he went to bed every night, maybe tonight, Lord, maybe tonight. And um, he was very effective in his gospel ministry. Now he's gone home to heaven. He's passed on to his reward, but he always kept the coming of the Lord uh, before him. In fact, John tells us this is how we ought to pray. Even come, so Lord Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, um, thank you for the hope we have in the person of your son. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus promise that Uh, If he would go, he will come again. And we uh, long to, by your Holy Spirit, understand the coming of the Lord, to uh, 
work through these things that are uh, difficult to understand, to be enlightened by your Holy Spirit, to be students of your word, to rightly divide. Uh, Lord, we uh, think of um, many enemies of the uh, cross of the Lord Jesus, many enemies of his promises. And um, Father, we realize it's not our responsibility to... uh, uh, to judge that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he will uh, uh, fix things. He'll change us and he will uh, fix things. And so we uh, just pray to that end in, in and along with the Apostle John, uh, even so come Lord Jesus. Bless us tonight, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.